0: Well, Well. (laughs) (laughs) we're here to start talking about what does it mean to be human? How are we human?
1: I don't know. We're still figuring it out. We're figuring a lot of things out. I'm Craig.
0: (laughs) And I'm Carla.
1: And we're trying to understand being human from the perspective, perspective of God's story in the Bible.
0: It's more than just being a species like Homo sapiens.
1: We think it's about community, about relationships and about welcoming.
0: We're figuring it out still.
1: So, join us as we do.
0: Because we're not holier than you. Oh, I didn't want that to rhyme. Well, <laughs> we're here to start talking about what does it mean to be human? How are we human?
1: I don't know, we're still figuring it out. We're figuring a lot of things out. I'm Craig.
0: And I'm Carla.
1: And we're trying to understand being human from the perspective, perspective of God's story in the Bible.
0: It's more than just being a species like Homo sapiens.
1: We think it's about community, about relationships, and about welcoming.
0: We're figuring it out, still.
1: So, join us as we do.
0: Because we're not holier than you. Oh, I didn't want that to rhyme. Hello. Good afternoon. Well, who knows when you're listening to this, but uh, welcome back to the Not Holier Than You podcast. I'm Carla. I'm Craig. And we're here because we're getting ready to begin a new book study called, the book is called How to Have an Enemy, Righteous Anger and the Work of Peace by Melissa Flora Bixler. The book is uh, published by Herald Press out of Harrisonburg, Virginia. And she comes from it as her, from her perspective, as a Mennonite pastor in Raleigh, North Carolina, which puts her into a particular time and space and uh, thinking that has come out of the last few years, I'd say. Um, well, maybe even more than a few. She writes as a a white woman who has been. Uh, learning and growing in her knowledge of of um, what it means to be white. So I'm going to stop there. Do you have anything to add?
1: Well, a couple of things about her um, uh, background that affects the way she writes. Her graduate degrees come from Princeton, which is a traditionally Uh, Presbyterian Progressive School, and also Duke University, where it's also a Methodist school, and her own personal background includes Episcopalian. So she does have kind of a mixed uh, background when it comes theologically and biblically, which I think helps her bring different um, insights into the Anabaptist Mennonite perspective.
0: Right. So they're going to be a little bit broader and a little bit more, uh, maybe taking a little bit deeper dive into some of the areas that we generally hold close as Anabaptists and as Mennonites. So um, this is a, I believe, 12 or 13 chapter book. A couple of weeks ago when we were at church, we began talking about chapter one, Who is My Enemy? We aren't going to spend a lot of time on that chapter except for a couple of things. She starts off by talking about a Christmas Day truce that was written about in World War One, in which uh, the, the French and the German soldiers have a truce. They go out, they are friendly to one another. They are um, playing games, soccer, football, if you would, if you would, um, sharing cigars and food. And then the next day they go back to fighting with one another. I believe it begins with the singing of Silent Night. Um, and yet that's pretty much a myth overall, according to what we see in the book. And do you want to add a little bit to that from the book, Craig? No? Okay. But one of the questions that comes along in uh, this idea of being a Christian in the world means what does it look like to live into the reign of God? And I'm taking that question from a study guide written by Johnny Rashid. I'm guessing at the pronunciation of his last name. But really, what does it look like to live into the reign of God? How does that look? And those are some things that... We can think about, we can think, well, we go back all the way to the beginnings of the Bible, of Genesis 1 and 2, where we see what life is to be like uh, as God has ordained it in the creation and in the garden. We can then look back at it as what does it look like when Jesus has come and walked the earth? How do we look at the life of Jesus in order to see how we live? And Jesus is not just coming as, we hear the term second Adam, but as I recall my professor, Chris Kettler, talking about this when I was in seminary, uh, he said, you know, it's it's not that we're Adam all over again. Jesus comes and heals that old Adam. And what does it mean to live within that healed personhood? What does it mean to live as someone that is now renewed and redeemed in Jesus Christ? And so that is uh, something for us to think about from this first chapter, who is my enemy?
1: So about that, idea of how do we live into this and the way you were relating it um, to uh, what your professor had talked about. Just as a suggestion, if anybody wants to, we've got 12 episodes that deal specifically with that question about the image of God, Adam, second Adam, etc. Right. Before this, so yeah, so you we won't go into this.
0: <laughs> right. We're really going to kind of start with chapter two and... Uh, That is named Making Room for Enemies. And there is a section in this book in which um, Flora Bixler has talked about the fact, I I think I'll kind of bring about it as when we are in church on Sunday mornings, we are generally in what has become known as the most segregated hour in the United States. And she then points and she's talking about our embodiment of our faith and that we often fail to attend to the bodies that we live in, that we walk in, that we are a part of every single day of our lives, of course. And she talks about something in which we turn the good news into a strategy for quietism, and she shares a story of a pastor who brought up that his church is a model for nonpartisan, apolitical worship because he was saying that he has ice agents and undocumented people who are worshipping together and share the eucharist or as others might say the lord's supper or communion She says that she read that statement and she wondered about the spiritual and emotional harm that occurs when we ask victims and their tormentors to be made one in the common meal of communion. So what does that do for us? What does that mean for us as the body of Christ to embody the unity of the Lord's Supper with someone who, as she writes, an hour later could show up in uniform to kidnap someone from the same church? to disappear that person from the only life they know, to separate them from their family, friends, work, and community. She wasn't comforted by that thought. She was horrified. So um, it's interesting. This term quietism, a little bit was new for me. What is political quietism? Could be something that we could be thinking about. What does it mean to be, and how, then, Is political quietism not a solution to loving our enemies? Or why is it not? And so that's something for us to be thinking about. Now, I'm not going to necessarily answer all of these questions, but I want us to think about and focus on these for when we come together. And so something to think about is, who are your enemies? Do you have enemies? Are you embarrassed by the fact that you might have enemies?
1: So I, that's an interesting point. And maybe sometimes our definition of enemy is too limiting or too narrow. Okay. Um, maybe if we can acknowledge that we have enemies, um, it opens up another way of viewing people who irritate or antagonize or toward whom we have um, negative feelings. I mean, uh, maybe it's good to learn how to have an enemy.
0: Right. And is the enemy just the person who annoys you or is there something more and something deeper to having an enemy? I can only imagine what it would be like to be an undocumented person and know that there's an ICE agent And maybe somehow, some way, they're able to put that aside for that hour. But then if it's not kept as something that's put aside, what do we do? And I know that there are going to be Christians that will really rail against this. Um, Well, that ICE agent has a job and they have to do their job. Maybe it's not a job a Christian should be in. I don't know. Maybe that's a, a question to think about.
1: Or maybe um, they should be a Christian in that position in a different way, perhaps, <clears throat> if, if, if possible.
0: Um, okay. Uh, I mean... Within an agency that does something like that?
1: Either to be a person of conscience, to be a force of resistance, to do whatever they can from the inside. I don't know.
0: Right. Because certainly what we can think about maybe... And this has been said before, is to remember that Jesus, when he was just a young child, he and his family had to flee to Egypt to escape uh, death and persecution. And can we as Christians imagine that for people who come not only to our country, because there are people going to all sorts of countries around the world, not just here to the United States, And where there are people who resist refugees coming in or, or people from other nations immigrating.
1: So I I want to ask you though, about that thing about political quietism. Okay. So, and I made the same mistake just now. It's like, uh, is, is it incumbent on the ICE agent to be more Jesus-like? Or is it incumbent on all of us in the communities we live in to call upon everyone to be living lives of justice and moving towards equality? I mean, I could say, Mr. Mister, Ms. Ice Agent, quit your job or do it more Jesus-like. And then relieve myself of any responsibility in that political dilemma. Mm-hmm. It's up to them to, to do it differently. Actually, it's uh, isn't it up to all of us, rather than just the individual, say the immigrant and the ICE agent? It's it's all of us, right?
0: Yeah, it, it would be. It would be something that we as, well, I guess within the community of faith, it would take a whole different realm and uh, projectory uh, journey. Um, Than it would as someone outside of the community of faith, no matter which community of faith, can we say that we're all one members, that, that even though we're many different people, we are all members of one body, that body being the body of Christ. Now that can become problematic, at least that's where I'm finding myself struggling Because right now, I feel like there are enemies within the body of Christ who are taking us away from that Christ like life. And that's where I think you're pointing us toward. Um, So, yes, how do we as a community of believers live into that realm of God? How do we live into God's justice? How do we seek? the peace of those in the community, perhaps beyond us is the question as well.
1: So here's another question for you. So I, in, in the original, in the, in the story that we're referring back to, it's the story of a communion service mm-hmm. within a congregation setting. You know, it's there for an hour. It's a, yeah. it's a, it's a moment in time, right? But you keep on talking about living into a kingdom you keep on talking about embodiment, and you talk about these other things, which has nothing to do with a one-hour ceremony. Right. And so
0: do, Jesus do, didn't do, redeem us for just one hour of the week. Do, do, <laughs> do people in general make that shift
1: that the church isn't the place where people gather for an hour? It's this pervasive all-of-life perspective. You know what I
0: mean? Yes and no. I think, I mean, yes. And I, yes, I understand what you're saying. And I'm going to say that people are a yes and no with that perception because part of that perception has taken them into very different places of understanding how to live that life. And so we find that there are some people who say to do justice means to speak out against things like abortion or against homosexuality or and and then there are others who are saying no we need to also say that there are people of color who have been made to feel made to be we have systematically or systemically within the structures that we have in our churches, in our government, in all sorts of areas, we have placed uh, roadblocks for people who are not of a particular color and are not of a particular class of people and who do not hold the same values as as we do, whoever we is, and I put that in uh, quotation marks.
1: You couldn't see the air quotes, I did. No, she yeah. really did. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so um, we're gonna try and take this. We're gonna try and do this in about 20 minutes. So we have about five more minutes that we can go here.
1: Okay. And just as a, a just a, just to let you know, we have two other guests in here recording with us. Uh, two dogs, and have a delivery vehicle. Oh, it's going by. Okay. Yes.
0: Thankfully, one is not barking, and hopefully that will not happen, but he does have a cone around his head, so he's making some noise.
1: Um, so one of the things that you were just talking about um, was this we sense, of, which generally has to do with whoever the we is can be broadly defined, but the way you were using it, maybe pejoratively or... Um, but it was referring to a political and by political, I don't mean partisan parties. I mean right. you know, somebody who holds power. Okay. Uh, you were using it in a sense of somebody who has the power to define what's good, what's bad, what's you know to tell the story that everybody should follow, all that kind of stuff. Um, it makes me think of the saying about fish are the last to discover water. Oh, I mean, do we know the power we wield to define? The realities in which we live, and we just assume if it's not the way we're used to, it's wrong, and bad. And does that fit into this? One of the things that the writer Melissa mentions, she uses this phrase on page forty-two, and she just uses this phrase: the corruption of whiteness.
0: Ah, whiteness.
1: You know, and and most of us who are reflect who who whose melanin reflects certain shades of the sun light or whatever, um, you know, we would think, well, our whiteness, whether we're white or black, it's not us, but whiteness is different than light colored skin. What's whiteness?
0: Okay. Yeah. And, uh, thanks for bringing that up. Whiteness. Yeah. You and I and others, we can't help that we have lighter skin than other people, um as a matter of fact we have birthed two children who have much darker skin than me <laughs> and uh so yeah whiteness what is the difference between whiteness and be just being white you know I, it's like an attitude it's a way in which i carry myself or i know myself to to think and be within a cultural um a, a cultural identity that gives me a sense of power and so while my father had dark skin and dark hair and was from mexico i think he accepted a sense of whiteness perhaps because his father was white even though his mother was But also not. just
1: to live into the system that he was working in and functioning in,
0: right? Right, right. I mean, um because somewhere along the line I just remember my stepmother saying, "Your father's not Mexican, he's Spanish," which of course then implies white, European. European, yeah. but the man I knew was dark-skinned, dark-eyed, black-haired. Black yeah. He was Mexican to me. And so I did not have that coloring in, and so I never experienced what he may have experienced as a man who looked Mexican, um, but he was in a larger Mexican culture, too. Tucson, Arizona has a much larger Mexican culture, a much larger uh, um, acceptance of that. And yet there were probably times and places where that didn't fit for him. And I, I, I don't know Um about any of those times, but I'm going to guess that there were possibilities of that happening to him. Whereas for um, other men and women whose skin is much darker than my own, they have experienced, based on their skin color, based on their gender perhaps, a certain treatment from people whose whiteness says, I'm better than you. And so I think that's what we're talking about so, there.
1: So whiteness whiteness is about power.
0: Yes. Yes. And the church that has the power in this country is, generally speaking, the white evangelical church. And now I'm not putting necessarily like Presbyterians or Methodists or Catholics into that. The evangelical church tends to be somewhat non-denominational, and that is the um, that seems to be what is pushing and and um, carrying certain power structures along right now. At least that there are many of us within the term being christian i am a christian we are saying i'm not that kind of christian
1: well we might need to figure out what kind of christian you are uh, in another episode
0: right so we want to be thinking about what is political quietism why is political quietism not a solution to loving our enemies and uh we're going to talk about some ideas about loving our enemies in the next episode thanks for being with us today I'm Carla
1: and I'm Craig
0: and we are not holier than you and
1: Mika and Oni are quiet they didn't make any barking sounds maybe next time all right well hey thank you for uh listening to our conversation
0: not holier than you. <laughs> uh,
1: and boy, we really like that title because I think it's true.
0: Correct. you <laughs>
1: have to say it so quickly. Oh, I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> I know I'm not holier than anybody Oh, I thought else you meant here. me. Okay. No, no, no. So, I'm talking t- about myself.
1: Uh, so we're a couple of pastors.
0: Yep. We pastor a small congregation of Anabaptist Mennonites here in, in Idaho.
1: Meridian, Idaho. Meridian, Idaho. Yep. Yeah. We're just learning this stuff and trying to figure it out along with you. So if you, if we say something that's heretical or horrible, or you think we're just wrong, that's okay. We probably, we might be. We're learning as we go.
0: Oh, I don't think we're heretical no. anyway. But um. <laughs> I try a little. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, um, we are glad that you joined us, and we hope that you'll join us again. Great. Right. All right. See ya. Thank you. Bye. Bye.